0: words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So, as I've said one or two times, uh, in part, the season of Lent is inspired by Jesus' own season or time in the wilderness, both 40 days. At his baptism, Jesus' identity as the Beloved Son is confirmed. And then the Spirit casts them out into the wilderness where the Great Tester tests this identity to the max. What does Jesus think being the beloved son means? How will he live that out? And what will he trade it in for? Based on that, Lent is a season for us to spend some time asking, what does it mean for us to be the beloved children of God? And how does that shape our identity? What does it mean for us to be a beloved child? And how do we live that out? And what will we trade it in for? Within Anglicanism, one of the major means of knowing that we are beloved children of God and helping us know how to live that out is, as I've said for the last two weeks, our, our liturgical tradition. So during this night, I'm spending some time exploring our liturgy and our liturgical tradition. So when I talk about our liturgical tradition, I'm talking about everything that we do and all that it involves. So we often think that our liturgy is just the words in the book. But it is not just the words in the book. It is the actions. It is the silence. It is the singing. It is the symbols that surround us in the church. It is the colours, the fact that we change our colours from purple and lent to white for Easter, to red for Pentecost, to green for ordinary time, and then back to purple for Advent. Those changes of colours are signs for us that something different is going on in that part of the year. Our liturgical tradition is multi-sensory. It is not just the words on a page. And God uses all of this to form us as the people of God, to transform us into a missional people. So every time we gather together for worship, we are while acting as a foretaste of the world to come, practicing what that might look like. So we practice that with the words that we use. So in 404, I say to you, grace and peace to you from God, and you reply with, God fill you with truth and joy. You should know that. It's been 30 years. Uh, And, I mean, those... Those are not words that we would normally use in our daily life, and yet we are invited to use those words in our daily life. As we say those words to each other, we are acting as a foretaste of the way that God wants this world to be. As we confess all the things that separate each other, as we then go to the people who might annoy us and pass the peace, and as we gather around the table, remembering how Jesus gathered his disciples around the table but also remembering every single time Jesus ate with people, both the right people and the wrong people, people he should have had nothing to do with, we act out a foretaste of the way that God wants this world to be. So it is much more than just the words on the page. What we do here is important, but it's not the point. The point is how we continue to live out what we experience in worship the rest of the week. Continuing to act as a foretaste of the world to come and living in solidarity with all those who work for the transformation of the world according to God's justice. So as I said last week, our worship has three elements to it. First, we are gathered by and in God with each other. So we've just done that. We are gathered by God, together as the people of God. And we did that in our greeting of each other, we did that in the words that we used, we did that in the confession. And now we're in the middle bit, which is the story where we engage with both the Scriptures and the story of the people of God since the time of the Scriptures. And the last part is where we go, where we are sent out to join God in God's mission. So last week we spent a little bit of time talking about gathering and uh, we reminded ourselves that we are gathered by the Spirit into the worship that exists eternally within the heart of God and within the fabric of creation. We are gathered by God with all who have and will join us in worship. It is much more than just this little group of people who are gathered here today, and it is much more than those who will worship in this place today. It is gathering with all those who will use the texts that we will use or are similar, so all the Anglicans that have and will be and who will worship today. But it's also all those who will Uh, be gathered uh, using the God-given texts from the ancient liturgies of the East and Western Rites. So all those in the Orthodox tradition, all those in the Catholic tradition, all those in the Lutheran tradition, as well as the Anglican and Episcopalian tradition, we gather with all of them and with all who will worship today. This week we're going to look at a little bit at story. So I use this uh, picture because this picture is at Tugba, which is in Israel. I think this still exists. Um, uh, Some Jewish settlers tried to burn this church down um, because Christians tend to be Palestinian. So this church goes back to the 3rd century, so it's very old and it's on the site of, uh, on, the, on the shores of, of the Sea of Galilee, where uh, one of the resurrection appearances where Jesus uh, had um, fish and bread. Uh, so we have the fish, and there were five loaves of bread. If you look very closely in there, there are only four in the basket. The fifth bread was on the altar. So... Uh, It's a good symbol, both of the stories of Scripture, but also how those stories continue to be lived out by the people of God past that point. And that's really what this middle part of the liturgy is about. It is about uh, hearing these stories uh, and then living them out again in the world today, just as this mosaic uh, invited the people who gathered in this place to do. our liturgy places a very high store on Scripture. And I need to say that because while I have friends who are Pentecostals who say, uh, like, you guys don't really take the Bible very seriously, we're the ones who take the Bible seriously. Uh, And I'm like, yeah, I'm not entirely sure that's true. Uh, And they say, all of your stuff is man-made and ours is all Spirit-inspired. And I'm like, again, I'm not entirely sure that's true. So one of the things we need to note about our liturgy is that, well, most of it comes from Scripture. So the old liturgies were simply passages of Scripture that were used on a regular basis that eventually just got strung together. And then uh, the Spirit inspired some people to write some prayers out of praying those pieces of, of Scripture that kind of held those together, that were the string that strung all of those pieces of Scripture together. So you can actually go through our liturgy. And, fight and work out where all these bits of liturgy come from. They're not which pieces of writing that somebody sat down and did one day. They actually come from Scripture. So, that's the first thing to note. The second thing to note is that every week we hear lots of Scripture. Now, some of us struggle with that a little bit because we think... Wow, Scripture is a bit outdated, isn't it? Um, There's bits of it we don't like. But actually, as one of my lecturers, uh, who is one of the chief editors for the uh, version of the Bible that I do the Gospel reading out of, the Common English Bible, uh, Joel Green, said, uh, The story of the Scripture is our book. Like, we can't avoid that. Uh, It sits in the middle of our life as the people of God. And we can try to ignore it, but it's always there. So one of our tasks in gathering for worship is actually to wrestle with this story every week. So part of what I'm doing here is helping us wrestle with the story that sits at the life, the heart of it, the life of our, of our being, really. And every week we are given big chunks to read. Uh, some Pentecostals are surprised at how much we actually hear. And if you go to a Pentecostal church, you'll be surprised at how little you hear, in fact. Uh, it's one of the big differences. So every week, uh, if we do it all, we have uh, mostly a reading from the First Testament. Uh, then we have a psalm. So the psalm is actually in the wrong place in LSG. Um It's supposed to come after the first reading as a response to the reading. So we've flipped it around, which makes it sometimes feel a bit... Why is that psalm there? Well, it's a response to what we've just heard. And then we have a New Testament reading, and then we will have a Gospel reading. That's a lot of Scripture to be read out every week for us to hear and to contemplate. And it's important because, uh, well, also in the Anglican tradition, we um, have readings from the Apocrypha, which is the bits uh, that the Catholic and Orthodox Church accept as... Are scriptural and the Protestants don't, uh, so because we're good at standing in the middle, uh, we, we, we don't hold them in quite uh, the same esteem as the bits that we call scripture, but we still think they're worth reading and taking notice of. So they are involved in the lectionary as well. Uh, they are the pieces that were not written in Hebrew, they were only written in Greek, so they were written later. Uh, so the Protestant reformers went not in Hebrew, out, we're not going to have anything to do with them um, and the Catholics and Orthodox went yeah, we, we think they're still Scripture and they kept them in so, um, so most of the Bibles doesn't, don't have the Apocrypha because most of the Bibles are protest- printed by Protestant printing <coughs> organisations uh, but you can buy Bibles with the Apocrypha included and some very cool stuff in the, in the Apocrypha like Bell and the Dragon like, who wants to miss out on that? Um, So, um, one of the important things about the lectionary is that uh, you get to hear the whole of the story of Scripture. And you get to hear how it all holds together. The story of creation, fall, redemption, new creation. You don't just get to hear the preacher's favourite passages. And if you just hear the preacher's favourite passages, well, you get a very distorted view about what Christianity is all about. During the last week there was a leader of, well, we might call them a Christian church, I don't know, I'll put a question mark on that, who said God had given him a Tesla, which he didn't even want. And that's what happens when you tithe, because God will bless you. And I've got to say that if you are very selective in your readings, that's an adequate way of reading the Scriptures. But if you read the whole of the Scriptures, that's a pretty dodgy way of reading the Scriptures. That is not what the New Testament is about. So you've got to read the whole thing. Now, one of our key roles in the service, then, is the people who actually read these passages aloud. The first thing to note is these passages were written to be read out aloud. Like, we're very used to, in our book culture, thinking the Bible is something you read at home on your own. But that's only since the Europeans in the West invented the printing press, Just a kind of spoiler alert, the Chinese had already invented printing presses, but we tend to forget about that and think that Gutenberg was the first guy. So uh, the Mongols had printing presses because they printed off all these things, uh, books about how to do things for their empire. So they had printing presses and presses invented before the Europeans, but in our European-centric worldview, Gutenberg and all of that was the first one. And it certainly changed how we approach scripture, because suddenly everyone who could read, which was not everyone, could have access to the scriptures and could take passages home and read for themselves. But up to that point, they were in expensive handwritten manuscripts and scrolls, and so they were designed to be read out loud. So when people stand here and read those passages out loud, they are standing in the tradition of people who have done that. For thousands of years, reading the scriptures out loud as these passages were designed to be done. So, anyone can do it, but there are some things that I think we need to remember as we do it. As we read these passages out loud, we are helping us, the hearers, into what you are reading. So the first thing that our reading does is help people work out whether we're listening to history, or law, or poetry, or letters, or part of the Gospels. And each of those is a different genre and need to be read slightly differently. So yesterday, at a funeral, I was asked to read a poem, so I practiced it reading a poem and the husband of the daughter of the woman who died told me afterwards well when liz read that out to me i thought that's lovely but when you read it out it was very different and i was like well she probably just read it kind of as the lines but actually i worked hard to read it as a poem because it was a poem and i practiced it so that i could work out where i needed to breathe and which words are needed to emphasize, and how to read it in a way that helped people get into it and make the most sense of it. So we need to practice what we're doing. When we're reading, we need to practice. I even need to practice the, the gospel readings, and sometimes I don't practice as much as I should. But it's important that we practice. And part of the reason for practicing is, well, so that we can help people make sense of it. So if you're reading a piece from Paul, Paul's pretty complicated, Uh, Once I had to do some Greek translation, Uh, I did Greek for two years, Um, it was kind of useful, kind of not. Mm -hmm. Kai means and, and that's about it. Uh, So, um, we were given one, I think it was from Galatians, one verse, we had to translate it. None of us got it right when we got back the next day, none of us cheated, none of us looked at what the translation was, we just had a go. His Greek is dense. He knew Greek. The gospel writers, not so much. Like after a year, I could translate John's gospel. As long as you'd memorize the vocab, you were okay. Uh, And all the tenses and stuff. But Paul, so uh, you have to make sense of that for yourself before you read it out loud so the people who are listening to you also make sense of how that works. But also in other parts there's some really tricky names and you need to work out how you're going to say those names so you don't stumble over them uh, and even do a little bit of research about how you might say those names. Um, But even if you don't do that, you've got to be confident in how you say those names. Um, I remember once that I said, uh, I read a passage and I um, kind of um, gave one pronunciation of something and uh, our speech lecturer said at the end I've never heard that translation uh, that way of saying it before John where did you get that from and I went I didn't I just made it up and he went oh okay but he said well that's fine actually because you were confident you'd worked out how you were going to say it and you said it confidently and no one was going to think I think that's wrong no one like oh he's so confident that must be how it's said so the point of practicing is you can actually do that you can actually just be confident so I'm hoping you all got a job description for readers, and you'll take it home and think about it. So a couple of final things about the story bit. So the first thing is I want to say is about this guy. Does anyone know who it is? His first name's Thomas, second name Cramner, and our Anglican traditions in some ways sits on his shoulders. And we often think about Anglicanism as being quite like, just stuck in the mud and not much room for innovation and doing things differently. And this is the book and we should stick with it. And actually, there was a lot of controversy when we wanted to move away from his liturgies. Cramner was the great innovator. Here's the first thing he innovated what language was worship in when he was first ordained? Latin. What language were his liturgies in? Latin. No. English. English. Just think about that for a moment. Everything was in Latin, and he came along and said, liturgy needs to be in the language of the ordinary people. English. And just think of the fuss that was made about that. He was on version number three of his liturgies when he was put to death. He did not write one and say that'll do for the next 400 years. He was on number three. He was the great innovator. And he was adamant that worship needed to be in the language of the common people. That's what his prayer books were about. He would be appalled that in the 1900s, We were still using, effectively, his liturgies in his language. Yes, it's beautiful. Yes, it flows well. No, that's not what Cramner wanted. He was an innovator. So we have to remember that at the heart of our Anglican liturgical tradition is a spirit of innovation. And we need to, well, get back to that, actually, and be a bit freer yes, this is a gift from God, but in this bit of the liturgy, how can we create space for people to engage with these stories, allow these stories to shape our imagination, to shape how we see and live in the world? How do we make space for people to know that they are beloved children of God and to grow in how we live that out in our daily lives? So some of that is we do in the actions, but also how else can we do that? That's constantly a question that we need to ask. So part of that is the sermon. So this is this week's story. So part of my preaching, which is more than 12 minutes, is that uh, I'm hoping to help you engage with these stories on your own. So that's not just what I think, but it's also what you think. We are all theologians, every single one of us, whether we realise it or not. And most of the time we don't, and so we do our theologising without paying much attention to it. But we are all theologians, because we all have ideas about God, and we all have ideas about what it means to be a Christian, and we all have ideas about the place of the Bible, and we all have ideas about how to live all this stuff out. That is what theology is about. So, I'm inviting you to be just a little bit more intentional about your theologizing. But it's also not about what I think. It's about what we think. So the same guy that said we need to wrestle with The story of Scripture, because it is our book and it sits at the heart of our life, also said the role of the preacher is to help people's imaginations be shaped by the story of Scripture. I think that's a really important thing. So it's not knowing about the stories, it's allowing those stories to shape who we are. And one of the problems with the Protestant Reformation was. And modernity was, it turned everything into knowing more about, rather than allowing the story to shape us. You can know about everything without that making a jot of difference. One of the examples of that was when I was at college, and uh, I was part of the stroppy white men's group, which sounds a little frightening, but we were actually trying to call out moments of racism and misogyny in the life of the college, And we were a little group that some people didn't like because we would name the moments when they were being just a little bit racist. We'd go, ooh, isn't that a little bit racist? And there were some of the lecturers who knew all about racism and could use all the right language, but also were quite racist in some of the things they said and did. They knew about it, but at no point had they let that stuff actually shape how they engaged with the world. So that's the difference between knowing about and letting that imagination shape the world. So part of why I get you to talk is so that you can respond to what I've said, and so that we can actually do some of that work together, so that we can wrestle with these stories together and think about how do we respond, how does the story shape how we see the world. So that's the middle bit of our services that we're in the middle of at the moment. And in light of that, I'm going to ask you to turn around and just say, what is one thing that stood out for you today in all that I've just said? And then we will carry on with the prayers for today.